Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a bit chilly out there this morning and I'm not just talking about the weather. The Queen is once more in the spotlight after the sun this morning revealed that Mike Tyndall, the former rugby player and husband of Zara Phillips, has been claiming furlough money despite being worth more than 15 million quid and living on a 700-acre royal estate. As if Her Majesty hasn't had a bad enough year already with the revelations about Prince Andrew and the paedophile and the Harry and Meghan nonsense, here comes another spoiled and totally selfish member of the family doing something grubby and something rather greedy. You might not care about the royal family uh, or even uh, the minor members of it. Zara uh, is, of course, the Queen's granddaughter, but you should care about wealthy individuals taking advantage of government schemes when others have been left bereft with nothing. It's a right royal scandal, as far as I'm concerned. 0344 499 1000. So I want to hear from some of you out there, many of you who have not had much help from the government. Some of you have. Some of you have been on furlough for most of the year. But many people, let's not forget, have been forgotten in this pandemic and haven't made any money whatsoever. So the cheat of somebody like Tyndall, who's worth millions and millions and millions, furloughing himself because he hasn't been able to make any after-dinner speeches. I mean, do me a favour, matey, will you? 0344 499 1000. Coming up this morning, we're kicking off with Trevor Kavanagh, who wrote this week that Boris Johnson wants to open things up, but he's been prevented from doing so by the sage advisers. And he's not too happy about it. Neither am I, by the way. We're also asking how it's possible that so many university academics are now the subject of investigation thanks to their links with China and various spy agencies. Quite an incredible story. 0344 499 1000. Founder of the New European, Matt Kelly, joins us too with news that the the pro-Remain newspaper has got some new investment and is on the brink of expanding. And as ever, uh, of course, we want to hear from you. If you've got any questions for our medical experts or simply if you have news for us on how hard it's been to get anything out of this government, then please do let us know. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us talk to a man who has a very interesting view about the sage advisers who are leading so many politicians down a garden path and not allowing them uh, to climb over the fence into freedom. Trevor Kavanagh, a former political editor of The Sun, political columnist now at the newspaper. Trevor, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I read with some interest your piece yesterday, Trevor, because it totally and utterly chimed with what I've been saying for a very long time, that these sage advisers who we refer to as the scientists, many of them are not actually scientists at all, are they? Not in the sense that uh, this epidemic requires, anyway. They're not um, virus experts. They're um, they're academics, mm. not uh, medical experts. Right, exactly right. And your claim, uh, and I think it's probably backed up by the science, if you like, is that Boris Johnson... Um, at heart, would like to lift this lockdown quicker than they would like him to. Where where do you think that's all going, and how do you think he gets out from under their influence? Well, as I understand it, he is held back by the uh, advice of Sage on the number of deaths, and quite rightly in the sense that uh, 
only a few weeks ago we were looking at about 1800 a day dying uh, that was the maximum in january yeah but that is coming down very rapidly thanks to the sensationally successful vaccine program and indeed the um the lockdown itself i guess so uh the numbers are now according to the last couple of days figures anyway uh, around 300 plus so they're rapidly declining from that 1800 figure to a much much lower figure once they get to 100 they reckon people in government that i've spoken to believe that boris will be hard pressed and indeed doesn't really want to maintain the lockdown beyond the point of say 100 a day well, 100 a day is, is very bad news for the 100 who die, but for the economy and for the country, I think it's the point at which we have to let go. Yes, I think so. And I mean, towards the end of last year, before this new variant came in on the 18th, I, I was always pointing out to people that the average number of deaths per day in this country on any given day, regardless of the pandemic, is about 1,600 anyway. You know, a week rather. Uh, or, sorry, a day. So in terms of like the numbers of people who... Um, are affected by this disease outside of COVID in terms of the, the, the people suffering from the lockdown who can't get furlough money, who can't open their restaurant, who can't go back to work. I mean, the damage there does not seem to even be being looked at by the SAGE advisors. No, and I think that you're right, that the number of excess deaths, which, in, which is everything over the average over the five-year period, yeah. is now basically running at that average. So... One of the reasons for that is that there have been virtually no flu cases by comparison with previous years because of the lockdown, because all attention is focused on COVID. But there are members of the um, SAGE workforce who uh, are really very dubious characters, in my opinion anyway, and not least of them is Neil Ferguson, mm. who is now predicting that we could see another up to 167,000 deaths from this bug when Quite clearly, the numbers are falling as fast as it's possible to imagine. There's also a woman named uh, Susan Mitchie, who is not a virologist or in any way a directly a medical uh, expert. She's a behavioral scientist. She may have medical qualifications, but not directly in the field of uh, this particular virus. Uh, Susan Mitchie uh, is avowedly a communist. She's a member of the British Communist Party. And... I think we've seen from some of the very extreme left-wing uh, activists involved in uh, British society, not society, not least the uh, the National Education Union, that there are people who do not particularly want uh, to see Boris Johnson have a good war. They're rather relishing the fact that this has been a, um, a, a not a it's been a rough ride for Boris, to be frank. Mm. And now that there is a way out, which is clear and uh, clear and specific, uh, they seem to be dragging their feet and putting up new objections about reasons why we shouldn't lift lockdown. Well, that seems to be the trouble, doesn't it? I was watching Matt Hancock yesterday, um, and as he was revealing these figures, these statistics of you know ninety five percent of the over seventies have now been vaccinated. He's now asking for people to get in touch if they haven't been contacted yet by the NHS to get the vaccine. I was waiting for the next part of the, the sentence almost to say, and as a result of that, we can now do this. But there was no second part of the sentence. So all of the talk last year about when we get the vaccine, that will be a game changer. We're still waiting for the game to change. Indeed, and I think that it is changing. Uh, regardless of what people's uh, objections may be. We are seeing a fall in infections quite dramatically. We're seeing a fall in hospitalizations. And we're seeing, as I said, a very dramatic fall in the number of da daily deaths. So we are getting to the point where Boris has set the date of February the 22nd for setting out a roadmap for some sort of uh, recovery plan and return to normal. <clears throat> and he's also said that uh, schools will return on March the 8th. Now, there's an enormous amount of pressure building within the Conservative Party and elsewhere, in, in every home in the land probably, for that to be brought forward to the end of the half-term holiday, mm. uh, which is a week or two earlier. And indeed, Scotland and Wales are already doing this for primary school children. I think the pressure is on Boris to uh, accelerate that, uh, that uh, programme. And what do you think is behind the SAGE uh, advisors and their wish to continue with the lockdown? Do you think it's just that they quite like it? Do you think it's that they quite enjoy the kind of power? Or what, what, what do you think their psychology is? Well, I wouldn't want to imply too many um, 
motives to the Sage uh, group because quite clearly they would see themselves as being the um, moderators in a in a in a very complicated field, which is deciding as and when it's safe to um, to lift the lockdown. But I think there is no doubt that there is in some areas of our society an actual relish of the fact that we are locked down, the fact that the government has been down, the fact that we are able to dictate to people. Um, people, once they're given powers, as we've seen many times in recent uh, months, love to uh, uh, impose them. Mm. And I, I think that there are many members of parliament who are very worried about civil liberties and were very worried at the time that these emergency powers were effectively invoked at the beginning of the first lockdown. And they forecast exactly the situation, which is that people, once given powers to affect the lives of other people, will carry on using them long after their sell-by date. Mm. Quite. Because we seem to have given up altogether any kind of vestige of uh, democracy or any kind of conversations in Parliament about the the next stage, you know, because all of the things that we were told would happen, i.e., don't worry, there will be another debate before we impose any further lockdowns. You know, that seems to have gone by the wayside now. Indeed, and I think that's another very serious uh, subject, Mike. I think that the um, speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, uh, is resisting moves by various people, not least uh, the leader of the House, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who mm. has called for the full return of Parliament. But uh, Lindsay Hoyle is digging his heels in because um, he has decided the risk is too great. And I think that as long as the Parliament is not sitting properly, and if necessary, why don't we give the MPs the jab so that they can carry on as key workers? We are not seeing democracy being carried out in our in our in our national parliament. No, we're certainly not. I had an, an idea last week. I don't know what you think of this. Is that if you uh, need to stay at home because you've got some vulnerabilities and you're worried about going back to work as an MP, fine. But we should have a second tier payment system, which means that one, you get less money, like some poor people who are currently on furlough on eighty percent of their salary. You don't claim expenses, which many of them have been doing. I mean, I couldn't believe when I saw last week the numbers of uh, front bench Labour MPs who were claiming all sorts of things, including first class rail travel up and down the country when we're supposed to be in a pandemic. I mean, it seems extraordinary to me um, that MPs uh, will continue to insist on a lockdown, which doesn't affect affect them financially whatsoever. No, it's amazing, really, how people's um, scruples. I mean, you've also got queue jumping by people who are not frontline workers and have no justification whatsoever for getting ahead of the vulnerable mm. in the queue for, for vaccines. Um, you've got the story that you mentioned earlier about Mike Tyndall and the furlough scheme. Yeah. I think the furlough scheme is going to be looked back on as a huge funding for fraud. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that Mike Tyndall is guilty of fraud, but I do think that someone who is um, worth about £15 million pounds and is the only employee, as far as I can see, uh, or as far as the records show, mm. is receiving furlough from the government. I, I think that there are a lot of people who are pushing this to the, to the limit. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and I mean, it is always going to be uh, the case that there will be fraud out there. And we've seen uh, in some cases, some celebrities, I think Steve Coogan was one who furloughed his gardener uh, and Posh Spice was among them as well. Both of them, I think, reversed the decision when they realised somebody had found out about it. It wasn't as if their conscience had suddenly pricked them. But, you know... Um, Unfortunately, people who we, we now have a, a society which is split between those who can work from home very happily in their nice airy front room or their nice airy study with a very nice new Apple Mac power book um, and those who have to actually physically go to work to get paid. Yes, I think there are a lot of stories out there of deprivation, genuine uh, deprivation and, and pressure and anxiety. Uh, people who have to work simply to keep the... Uh, uh, keep the uh, body and soul together, really, uh, but also at the same time having to look after kids and self-home ed educate them. These are all uh, very difficult positions for people with no alternatives, and there are lots of those in the country who are actually enjoying the lockdown in the sense that, A, they might be uh, on guaranteed incomes, they might be public sector workers, they're... Uh, they're um, in good jobs and they can, as you say, uh, work from rather comfortable surroundings. But there are a hell of a lot out there who aren't and whose jobs are at risk and um, their livelihoods are at stake. 
Absolutely right. And those are the very people that Boris needs to think about. And those are the very people, many of whom probably uh, are responsible for giving him his 80 seat majority that he needs to start thinking about. Yes, and I think he is thinking about them. I, I mean, from what I hear, he would like to be able to act sooner rather than later. And of course, he's fully aware, as Rishi Sunak will be telling him every, every time they meet, that the economy is in a very serious way. Mm. One day when we stop thinking about COVID and hearing about COVID at every tick of the clock on the, on the, on the radio news, um, we will start looking at the price we're going to have to pay for this in terms of the cost is just gigantic. We're going to see real implications for the our daily lives. I mean, everything from road repairs to major uh, health service funding and, and so on. Where is this money going to come from once we've decided that um, we can get back to work and there's no jobs? Yes, exactly right. And finally, Trevor, what are you making of the situation with the Labour Party at the moment? Because uh, Keir Starmer, I think, generally, uh, universally was thought to have had a pretty bad week last week. He made his blunder at um, Prime Minister's questions about he couldn't remember what he'd said um, about the European Medical Medicine Agency. He then got involved in a bit of a punch up, it would seem, um, figuratively speaking, with Boris after the uh, after PMQs behind the Speaker's chair. And also a lot of people in the Labour Party saying, you know, he's not really what we thought. No, and I think that this is this is coming home to roost for the Labour Party. Um, but, you know, I'm no fan of um, of Keir Starmer for a variety of reasons, not least his persecution of uh, two dozen Sun journalists on uh, a witch hunt which mm. on which they are all cleared. So my starting point is that I'm not a fan. But on the other hand, for many people, he is actually a very plausible looking person who uh, he's, a, he's a QC. He's obviously intelligent. He is, in theory, this sort of person that the Labour Party would need in order to bring it back from the Corbynite days. And yet it's not working. His own personal ratings are fine, but the ratings of the Labour Party are dismal in the circumstances. They should be miles ahead right mm. now. And what I think is being revealed here is a terminal decline in the Labour Party itself. This bickering, squabbling ship is, is sinking. It's beyond salvaging. And I think that many senior Labour figures are now beginning to wonder what on earth they're going to do in order to create an opposition which is fit for purpose. Yes, I think that's right, because they lost Scotland because they weren't careful enough about protecting it. They apparently have now lost the north of England and large parts of it. And they're left with a sort of rump of, uh, of Putney, it would seem, and a bunch of uh, Ramonas. Yes, and that uh, red wall vote, by the way, is not a group of Labour uh, voters, ordinary members of the public who dearly wish they had a Labour Party to support. Uh, these are people who have given up on the Labour Party as, it's, as it stands and have left and they really want to see more of what Boris Johnson offered them in the general election, which made them vote for the Tories. Mm. They don't want to go back to Labour. They don't want a, a, a soft left style Tory party. They want a party that delivers jobs and prosperity to their region and to them and their families. Yes. And they're only going to get that one way. Trevor, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Trevor Cavanaugh, political columnist at The Sun, uh, with her view on Boris Johnson, that he wants to get us out of this, but he's being prevented from doing so by this rather odd collection of sage advisers, many of whom are not advising him on the basis of any medical knowledge, but are advising him on the basis of probabilities uh, of sort of, you know, psychological manoeuvrings and behavioural science. It doesn't make much sense to me. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to talk now to Robert Clark, Defence Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, because there was an incredible story yesterday uh, in The Times all about uh, Chinese government and uh, Chinese firms kind of getting involved in all sorts of research projects at universities in this country. Now, hundreds of academics are now uh, under investigation uh, as a result uh, of uh, a report which basically shows the Chinese um, sort of cultural influence into uh, levels of academia uh, in Britain. Robert, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. This is quite an extraordinary story. Tell us about it. Um, sure. So, um, first of all, this is, uh, this is nothing new in that sense. What we've done is highlight specific key examples um, of the, uh, the influence that China have within UK universities, research institutions, um, and uh, associated industry partners. Mm. Now, this work builds on a lot of previous work done last year, um, both at Civitas and at the Henry Jackson Society. 
Um, and crucially, what we've done is we've um, identified 107 relationships between UK universities and institutions um, and with Chinese uh, military linked either defence universities or arms manufacturers in China. Um, and then what we've done with these relationships, we've actually managed to identify several key areas where uh, research based in the UK is actually being exploited back in China uh, and potentially have a great impact with uh, the rise of Chinese uh, militarization and their, their modernization programs for military. Right. And if you say this has been going on for such a long time, why has it not really been highlighted before? What's the difference now, uh, say, to it was two, two or three years ago? Sure. So um, I think last year was really a turning point with uh, a report I was involved in, uh, with Civitas last year. Um, and like I said, with the Henry Jackson Society themselves have done similar work. Um, so last year was really uh, a turning point. Um, and I think now there's enough um, there's enough noise out there with these with these reports like like the one we've done recently. Um, and it, it highlights this strategic incoherence, really, that Britain have had. Um, and this goes back to really Theresa May's government and the, uh, the so-called golden era of uh, UK-Chinese relations. Mm. Um, and it's only really becoming apparent now, both the scale and the scope, um, of how incoherent and a policy this is for UK national interests. And it's a strange one, isn't it? Because the, uh, the the academics in question are under investigation for what they may have done to contribute to China getting weapons of mass destruction. But then it says, but they didn't do it knowingly. No, sure. Um, so there are several instances where, um, I mean, for example, the term weapons of mass destruction is quite lobbied around uh, carelessly. And we've identified these key areas where that actually applies. In, uh, in UK research um, that's then used um, in, in China, potentially. We use the word inadvertently, for example, because there is no actual proof or link that the uh, the academics and the institutions in the UK have done this knowingly. Um, you know, they've acted in good faith, uh, often looking for, you know, crucial funding, which China are only too happy to provide. Um, and we're not suggesting that the, uh, the universities in the UK or the academics themselves in question um, have breached, you know, sort of national laws and um, obviously sanctions regimes in place against China. Um, but this is a much wider issue of the uh, the Chinese civil military fusion strategy, mm. where they will seek to um, uh, they will seek cooperation with within civilian industries, and they will use that for their own military gain. Yes, there's an interesting piece of follow-up in the Mail today. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, Influence for sale, and they highlight a woman uh, by the name of Ling Gi, who's got a PhD from Oxford uh, and is Ten Cent's main representative in Europe. It turns out that Ten Cent, which I assume is a Chinese company, uh, have now got their name uh, on the Wycombe Chair of Physics at Oxford, and it's now called the Ten Cent Wycombe Chain uh, Chair, yeah. rather. Yeah, so interestingly, um, and I think this is, an, this is a wider example of what's happening in uh, some of the universities. Um, I mean, 15, for example, Russell Group universities have been implicated. Um, now, what we've done with the universities themselves, we've actually, uh, we've given them enough um, time and scope to uh, try and address these issues. And we've included that in the report. And we've actually, the online version uh, is open um, for any more uh, refutal and rebuttals from from the universities themselves. Right. But there is um, it's not just the it's not just the funding from the Chinese, which the case you've just highlighted shows. It's also the wider co collaboration between academics and scientists in China and in the UK. Yes. Uh, for example, the several um, the several key uh, joint cooperative events, particularly at Imperial College, where they have key uh, Chinese scientists uh, almost running these uh these centers so that alone is a worrying trend in well, it, in well it certainly is since imperial college seems to have a direct line into downing street because so many of the people on sage are from imperial college and in fact sure. uh, an awful lot of what goes on at nerve tag is run by imperial college yeah i mean imperial college is one of the ones that's got several of these uh research institutions now what we've looked at doesn't go towards health or implicate sage for instance at all mm. it is much more civilian uh science-based research but then will be uh, potentially getting exploited in China for the military. Yes. And we've identified that quite laboriously in uh, in several key examples. And the male's got a picture of uh, this woman, Ling Gi, with uh, TV physicist Brian Cox. Look at the sky, is what he normally says. Yeah, so with Brian Cox, there's, uh, I won't say with Brian Cox, but certainly with Manchester, at Manchester University, um, they alone have two centres, one of which is still uh, very much running. Um, what we've done is... Um, there's several key instances where there are 
these institutions in the UK where um, they may no longer be producing research, um, but some of them certainly are, even up until last year. And uh, one of the centres at Manchester is one of them. Mm. And what's the government said about your report? Because it's pretty uh, damning, I would have thought, of their kind of security uh, situation, isn't it? Um, I wouldn't say it's damning so much of the security situation. What we've tried to do is highlight recent um, this, this strategic incoherence, um, which, like I say, dates back to Theresa May's government. And hopefully what this report will do is actually shed a bit more light, um, not so much on the, the lack of UK security, but certainly the influence of China um, and sort of the, the, the wider Chinese strategic narrative of this civil military fusion. Um, and naturally it leads to their, um, you know, they have a desire obviously to overtake the US uh, militarily uh, this decade. Um, and it all feeds into this broader strategic context where the UK have been very slow to realise this. And hopefully this report will help to uh, add, that, add to that debate. Absolutely. Robert, it's a great report. It's well worth reading. Robert Clark, Defence Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. You can find it on Twitter. Uh, we'll retweet it out, of course, as well. Uh, I was saying just the other day uh, how ludicrous some of our institutions have now become, our seats of higher learning. Not only now uh, have we got them full of lecturers uh, who are telling our young people how to think, what to think and what not to think and what not to believe in, uh, but we're also now finding out about the rather insidious reach of Chinese companies, uh, about military uh, and civilian uh, sort of aims that they may have in this country. Surely this is worthy of a very big government investigation, isn't it? Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is... Another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, the snow's still falling, the gloom is descending, but, uh, you know, we're feeling pretty optimistic here at the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, as ever. Let's talk to Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. Matt, a very good morning to you. Welcome back. Morning, Mike. How are you doing? Very well, indeed. Very nice to speak to you. Now, we sort of caught up with each other the other day because we hadn't really spoken and uh, seen each other much. No, I mean, I haven't really seen anyone much, to be honest, since, uh, uh, since last March because we had a bit of a, a breeze, I suppose, through the summer. Um, but how's the lockdown been for you, first of all? Let me ask you that. It's been terrific, mate. I, I mean, I, you, you know how sociophobic I am. So yes. Yeah, the idea that I can bury myself in a room and just sort of observe the world on a screen is, mm. is heaven. Yes, but you see that you just you've just fulfilled another stereotype of one of these kind of you know rather well-off North London sort of champagne socialists who can sit home with his laptop and make as much money as he made before. Well, I'm not making that much money, mate. In fact, I'm making a lot less now that I've taken the uh, New European private. So yes, tell us a... about that, because it was owned by an, a group called Archon, but they ran into a bit of trouble, didn't they? Well, so I, I, I was working for Archon when I uh, had the idea of the New European. And um, as, you, as you know, it was only meant to last for a few weeks, but it sort of grew a life of its own. And Archon, like all uh, local media industries, uh, is struggling. And just as an aside, I would really encourage people to, you know, do what they can to support their local newspapers because they are seriously at danger of going out. And I promise people they will not realise how much they miss it until it's gone. You know, who is going to hold local councillors to account? Who is going to promote and be the champions of your community? It's the local media. And if they go, you're in big trouble. So anyway, Archon... Um, needed to uh, uh, change hands and were bought by a private equity company who um, talked to me about uh, would I like to buy the new European because they didn't see how it fitted in in Archon's portfolio. Mm. And I said I would very much like to do that and went to speak to a few people. 
and very quickly got, uh, I think we'll all agree, a quite illustrious band of investors together and we took it off Arkin's hands and this is now the second week of ownership and it feels great. Yeah. Can you name who they are or is that secret? Yeah. No, 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 I can. So uh, we've got, and this will confirm most of your suspicions of the sort of the global, <laughs> global remain conspiracy. Yes. We've got Mark Thompson, the former BBC Director General and uh, Chief Executive of the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, we've got um, Lionel Barber, who is uh, until recently the editor-in-chief of the Financial Times, the FT. Um, we've got uh, Gavin O'Reilly, is chairman of the business. Gavin used to run the independent group of newspapers and very sort of experienced um, uh, media operator. And uh, and then there's a host of others, uh, including, you know, interestingly, a guy called Tavit Hinrikis, who is uh, the founder of a billion, billion pound revenue business called Transferwise, which people use the whole world over to move money about. Mm. And and Tavit's an Estonian who thinks that there's a need for, you know, more and more debate, more and more conversation about what does Europe become, what does Britain become. And, you know, we've got 14 people who just think it's a good thing to do. Uh, and, and and they're putting their money where their mouth is. No, I think it's absolutely great. And, and unlike some people who uh, are on the other side of the political divide from me, who are already trying to shut down a TV station before it's actually got going, um, <laughs> you know, I think the more debate, the better, really, because Europe has changed, hasn't it? I mean, as part of what has happened to the EU, you know, Britain has moved away from it. And I think there's even more reason now, if you're in the EU, um, to think about doing the same thing. Well, I mean, I, I don't know about that, but I, I think definitely... It's exposed flaws. You know, I think it's exposed flaws on both sides of, of the channel. Um, I think, um, you know, but in particular, the vaccine crisis, yeah. I think, made a lot of people look at the European Union Commission and think, you a bunch of clowns. Mm. And, you know, I was one of them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the new European has never been afraid of sticking it to the European Commission when it needs to. We, we, our, our belief has always just been that, we are even taking into account all of the flaws on both sides. We're better off at the table with those 27 nations than we are off the table. And I still think that's the case. But there's no question, and it's never been my position, that you know we're leaving a perfect institution. I think if I was the European Commission, I'd be looking at what's happening in the UK and saying, hang on a minute, we won't be alone here in seeing nations looking at how they've been like the speedboat, like they called us around the vaccines yeah. and saying, we want a piece of that. Well, I, I understand that. Um, but I do think there's a way of combining uh, much, much closer relationships. I don't like us to, and I'm not suggesting that this is behind the Brexit vote, but I don't like the sense that Britain is somehow so special that it can go alone, you know, and it, and it's, and it, and it, on us, our, Kind of nationalism is something that needs to be protected. I don't think it does. I'm quite confident in in what Britain means, and I think it's a, an amazing country. But I do think we can we can show a lot to Europe, and Europe can show a lot to us as well. Yeah, of course. The other, I mean, the other interesting thing that's happened since uh, since the, the the leaving of the European Union is concerned uh, is that Britain itself is now under scrutiny more because, of course, we've got Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. Uh, arguing yeah. and agitating uh, for independence. They seem to yeah. think that they would be better off inside the EU. I don't think that'll ever happen, do you? Well, I, I mean, I, I, there's certainly no guarantee that if they dropped out of the United Kingdom, they'd be automatically uh, accepted back into the European Union. Uh, no, I do not, to answer your question. You know, I think the, U the United Kingdom is a very powerful institution and it's very, uh, it, it, it is a very deep history and cultural connection that it almost seems ridiculous to be even talking about breaking up of the United Kingdom, especially, I mean, put Northern Ireland to one side because that is more complicated and it's more kind of, the, the history there is different. Yeah. But the history with Scotland and Wales, the idea that, you know, in our lifetime, we're talking about them becoming separate nations. Well, if you'd have had that conversation with me when I was 15 years old, it would have, you'd have laughed it out of the classroom but now it's a it's a real conversation yeah but there's a lot of bizarre conversations going on at the moment aren't there that you never thought you would ever be having because i mean the thing yeah. about what i think the eu vaccine crisis has shown uh, is that a lot of individual european countries are also very proud nations on their own and they maybe look at what's going on in brussels and they look at who's running the commission itself and they're not very smart they're not very good at what yeah. they do i agree and and you know it's interesting i was speaking to um 
a very influential German journalist who's going to join the New European as a columnist. Um, and because that's part of the New Europeans' mandate, I think, is to try and have Europeans explaining the thinking behind some of these decisions. Mm. You know, why does Germany act the way it does? Why does France and Macron say the things he does? Why do the European Commission fall into these uh, behaviours? And, and the, this German lady, Tanne Koch, was saying to me, um, you know, there's definitely an appetite for a paper like the New European in Germany, but actually what Germany needs is the opposite of the New European. Mm. They need something to to show, you know, to be a bit more sceptical about the New European. And I think that's probably fair enough. You know, there are, there, there's no point getting carried away in some sentimental, you know, uh, vision of a federal Europe where everybody is the same, but we all speak different languages and we've all got different industries mm. and we've all got different backgrounds. We're not the United States of Europe and we never will be. But, uh, I, and I think you're absolutely right in the sense that there are, countries within the European Union who are thinking maybe we should be a little bit more sceptical. But for me, the answer isn't, oh, leave the European Union. The answer is change the European Union. I still think it's a great project and it, and it's got a long way to go. But that was an argument that a lot of British politicians used, wasn't it? Many, many years yeah. uh, and many, many decades ago when they said, you know, it's better to be inside it, uh, having a seat at the table, making changes to it. But I, yeah. again, I mean, I don't want to keep using the vaccine crisis as, as the only example, but it really showed that these people... Um, are pretty sort of quick to uh, to punish those that don't do what they want, who are pretty quick. I mean, the idea that they suddenly decided that after arguing that we could never put a border down uh, through the middle of Ireland and they decided they could. I mean, it's quite extraordinary what what they did. And, yeah. and they, they, they looked kind of petulant. They looked inexperienced. And, and frankly, they just looked amateurish. I mean, look, I mean, as you, I don't know if, you, if people who are watching the stream, they can see over my shoulder, this is the current issue of the new... European. Is that, I thought that was, he, I thought that was maybe the back page about Liverpool. <laughs> that, that's even worse. The uh, no, but the um, you know we like I say it is a crisis uh, for the European Union, and, yeah. and the thing is I wouldn't. Um, it, the tragedy of what happened over the vaccine was that it gave everybody, it affirmed everybody's worst views, you know, and if you if you were a hardcore Brexiteer then you, you sat back and you said, look, we were right all along. There are a bunch of bullies and, and they're, uh, you know, this is not behaviour Britain should be part of. I would say, you know, put it in perspective, it was a, well, if you and I were sitting in the pub, I'd have stronger language. It was, yeah. an, it was an error, yes. you know, um, and it was anomalous. But I do think it did expose a kind of uh, flakiness and a weakness and an insecurity, perhaps, yes. at the top of the European Commission. And what do you think is going to happen, for example, with the French elections? Because if Macron uh, loses, which he may or may not do, it's a bit too early to say and a bit too mm. close to call, perhaps. Um, but I think if Marine Le Pen gets in, that's going to be a massive, um, you know, building block, isn't it, for for, for, yeah. for France to leave it? Well, yes. I, I mean, for me, that would be tragic. I mean, you, you've always got to be careful about not patronising a constituency of voters, which, you know, was a mistake we all fell into in 2016, I think, or making assumptions about what lies behind that vote. But for me, for somebody as far right as Marine Le Pen uh, gets into the Elysee, then that's, I think that's bad news for, for Europe. Uh, it may be a killer blow for the European Union over time. I don't know. Yeah. And is your position as the newspaper, the New European, uh, uh, all about rejoining? Uh, or is it just about no. continuing the conversation? No, I think... Um, you know, we're not the Rejoiners Gazette. We, I mean, let me put it this way. I think if we do rejoin the European Union, it's got to be a very different European Union and it will take a long time to get there. I think in the meantime, we've all now got to look forward and we've got to be progressive and constructive and I'm fed up, and I'm sure all of your listeners are, I'm fed up whining about 2016 or certain elements of the iniquity of the vote and who lied. And I mean, the point is, it's gone, that, that right. bird has flown. We've got to look forward now. And what I'd like the New European to be, its editorial position, is, is to look for how uh, uh, we can build bridges that are constructive and helpful with Europe to stop being so kind of... Um, 
shouty uh, and maybe stop being quite so partisan so that we can engage people in a conversation. I still very much believe in the European Union as a project. Uh, but there's no point me just saying you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, mm. or you got lied to. We've now got to look forward and say, OK, let's deal in specifics. Let's talk about how can the NHS be better by looking perhaps at other healthcare institutions across Europe? How can we have a fairer uh, democracy in this country by perhaps having um, uh, proportional representation so that when the Green Party get a million votes, they don't just get one MP? You know, I think these kind of things, uh, now is a time for Britain, I think, both for Brexit and for the COVID crisis. Now is a time for us to take stock and to think about big answers to very big questions that have plagued us for decades, all my lifetime. And I think, you know, with a, with this kind of bold, new, adventurous spirit that, that the Brexiteers have called for, well, let's engage everybody and try and be as constructive as possible for, for everybody in this country, not just 52% or 48%. Let's move forward yeah. as a... As a you know, an adventurous nation. No, I think that's absolutely right. And and also in terms of uh, trade with Europe and all of that, you know, we want to get the best deal that we can, but there's no need, there's no need or reason for that to become uh, a sort of, you know, a friends or enemies conversation. It should just be, we cooperate with one another in the best way uh, that helps yeah. both parties really. And you can do individual deals with individual countries. There's no reason you can't, except for the fact that the European Union won't let you. Well, yes. Well, I mean, and also the WTO. There, I mean, there are, you know, there are global uh, protocols in place that are there to protect fairness and, 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 and so that you can't carve up um, industries and carve up mates and, uh, and have separate rules for separate people. But, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's hard to say to the European Union, you, sh you know, you should just bend over to accommodate the UK because it was the UK that, that instigated this crisis. And, I think the obligation is on the UK to 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 show um, that all the promises and the the pledges that we made that we can at least you know do our very best to make them come true. I was a bit worried when I saw you know the UK is now applying to be a member of this Pacific trading bloc. You know, last time I looked on a map, you know. We are nowhere near the Pacific Ocean, so you know. <laughs> apparently, there's some talking... apparently there's some island in it though that that we 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 still own it hasn't been stripped oh, right. from us. Right. So apparently okay. that gives us if you need you apparently don't actually need uh, you know yeah. a physical presence in it. But the idea that, and I'm not saying this is the case, but if it was the case that we were, you know, swapping trade with 27 nations, the nearest of which is 13 miles away, for trade with Peru makes makes me wonder about the sanity of the you know the lack of logic there but you know we'll see yeah i mean i think so far uh, it's going pretty well i mean i know that we can probably argue about that all day but i'm glad to see there's still things that we disagree about matt as well i'm going to get too reasonable here but tell us about the project as well a little bit because i'm interested in the future of newspapers as you are obviously and the future of all media because it has changed an awful lot since you and i both worked together back in the daily mirror but what about yeah. is, is 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 most of your sale now actual papers or is it online no 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 it's still uh 95 is something you can hold in your hand and right. get posted through and, and our subscribers are growing terrifically the paper you know i just like to say to get my kind of hype in the paper is not just about brexit you know in fact it's anything but it's mm. become very broad uh it's got that european uh liberal progressive feel about it but i like to think that it's grounded in common sense in the centre and there'd actually be a lot of ideas there that, you know, lots of different people would find themselves surprised to agree with. Mm. And, and it's got loads of European culture stuff. So it's my plan is that um, we continue to grow the newspaper. I think um, the idea of being a niche these days is, uh, is, is good. You know, I think the broader you are, the harder it is in media to kind of really make a compelling business model. So yeah. I'm not concerned about being in a niche. Uh, in fact, the Americans who pronounce it niche, I've got a phrase that the riches are in the niches. And, you know, I think that's, uh, there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's a market for us over, I think Europe is very interested in what's happening in the UK. And, a lot of European media people I speak to 
are surprised actually to hear that it's not everybody's kind of, you know, uh, raving Brexiteer. And, you know, they've got the impression that Farage, for instance, who's fallen off the radar for me, that Nigel Farage is kind of moving the conversation along. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think both sides have simmered down a bit. And, you know, perhaps there are people who these days would have considered themselves traditional Labour voters 30 years ago or traditional Tories 30 years ago. And now they're not quite so sure, um, you know, uh, and, and they're more interested in this idea of can we bring about radical change from the centre, you know, where stuff gets done rather than the dogma on either side of the political spectrum. I think there's still a hangover, though, from uh, the whole situation with uh, with what Nigel Farage managed to achieve, because he did, despite the fact that you probably would never give him credit for it, he did achieve what he wanted to achieve, which was to get yeah. Britain out of the European Union. And I think COVID has obviously tainted everything, because imagine if we didn't have COVID, we'd be talking about Brexit probably non-stop at the moment, because the people who would want it to be going wrong or would want to report on it going wrong would be doing that, and those of us who wanted it to be a success would be doing that. And he hasn't really yeah. fallen off the radar. I mean, he's, he's on talk radio quite a bit, actually. Uh, and, yeah, he, and he's yeah. and he's writing a column in the Telegraph quite regularly. Yeah. And of course, we've got the May elections coming up, and it may well be yeah. that the Reform UK party does quite well. It may be, but I, what I mean is, is that you know, two years ago, whenever Nigel Farage wanted to be at the centre of the conversation, he was there, and he hasn't been lately. I would suggest, mm. but uh, you know, I think um, what we'll see, and I think it, I, I was listening to Piers Morgan talking to Chris Evans on Chris Evans's. Uh, show and you know you and I both know Piers very well and to yeah. hear Piers talking about it's time for moderate language and not to inflame situations you know <laughs> quite ring true but not quite but, no you know if Piers if <laughs> well that Piers, was shortly before Piers, he had a half an hour argument with me yeah, sure. but if Piers can uh, come to that conclusion I think the rest of us can and I'd really like I think people want to stop you know, there's always room for good old ranty polemics and, and good old ranty arguments. But at the end of the day, I do think people want this country to move forward and we've all got to agree on yeah. ways to do Listen, it. I, I, I definitely don't want to go back to those days when I used to trudge down to, to College Green every day, marching past the phalanx oh. of people with the European Union flags and that moron with the loud hail yeah. and a lot of other yeah. people with the Union Jack all on different sides of the road shouting at each other, actually yeah. arguing with each other in the street. And I'm going, what are you, yeah. what are you doing? You know? I mean, it's... It, it... You know, and the weird thing is, is that we all sort of sympathise with one side or the other, depending on on what our political uh, uh, flavour was. And I think you're right. You look back at that, and it just looked a, it looked really petty and pathetic, mm. and b, it just looks like pointless. You yeah. know, what was the point uh, of streaming at people you didn't like as they were stood on a Sky News yeah. podium being interviewed? And, and you didn't even not like them. You just didn't like what they were saying. I mean, it was bizarre. That's right. You know, very That's bizarre. Right. But I'll tell you that... one thing, Mike, just Go quickly. On. Listen, I'll tell you one thing, which I recommend to everybody, is get off social media and start having <laughs> proper conversations and read newspapers to get your ideas. Well, Good to ideas. See, to see no. even Donald Trump apparently has even said he's a lot happier having given it up. Yeah. Honestly, I'll tell you what, mate, I came off it and A, I've got about two hours a day back of my life. But I think I, I'm not exaggerating here or trying to make a, a silly point. Your positivity levels are so much better away from Twitter yeah. than 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 because you're just not bombarded by stuff that's in your face and aggravating you all the time. Get off Twitter. All right, Matt, listen, you've become far too reasonable. We're never having you on again. That's great. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Matt Kelly, founder of the New European and a far more reasonable man now that we've left the European Union and that he's no longer on social media. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Let's say a very good afternoon to Dr. Lawrence Gurlis. Lawrence, how are you doing? I'm fine, Mike. Yes, good. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to start with my usual question to you. How's the traffic flow in your surgery? How's the GP business doing this week? Well, whereas in January we were seeing people with COVID, positive COVID tests, a new Kent variant, uh, it's it's gone quiet. I can't remember the last time I've seen a positive case. I have to upload my results to Public Health Health England, and we're just not seeing the positives now. It really is on the way out, which yes. is great on the front line. Um, and uh, I think it's an achievement. And you've mentioned the vaccination campaign. I think it's really starting. You know, having started in December, it's really starting to affect the numbers and bringing them down uh, and 
as we can see, bringing the death rate down. We await the Tuesday figures, which are always the worst of the week. But if they're not too bad today, I shall feel greatly encouraged. Yes, I mean, I'm seeing figures from some parts of the country uh, where the reduction is as much as they're down to sort of 10% of what they were um, around about, what, three weeks ago? Yeah, no, it's come down very quickly. I mean, we've talked about lockdown. Lockdown is having an effect. Uh, As we've said before, lockdown should eradicate the virus completely. It doesn't. So I don't actually believe full lockdown works. I think sensible measures and social distancing and masks help. Um, But the severity of this lockdown combined with uh, the vaccination campaign, the fact that we're hopefully coming out of winter, although it's a very cold week, Mm. um, uh, all of those combined to bring the numbers down. And And this will continue. I hope by February 22nd, when the Prime Minister gives us his roadmap, he can be uh, look at the figures and be very optimistic. Yes, well, let's hope so, because I was saying, and I've now said it twice on the show, this uh, yesterday's briefing uh, with Jonathan Van Tam, as uh, Matt Hancock was talking about how many, how high the percentages of people who have been vaccinated, 95% of, uh, I think, 80-year-olds or over 70-year-olds and that kind of thing, I kept waiting for the next bit, which was going to say, and as a result, we can announce that something or other was going to be open, but they still haven't quite yeah. reached that point, have they? No, I... We'll find out on 22nd. I'm hoping that the Prime Minister defies the advice of the scientists and uh, and takes a bold move and and starts to to release things sooner rather than later. I I believe the schools will go back on March the 8th, and I think that is a good signal for other things uh, like shops, like some pubs and restaurants, other leisure facilities. But that, you know, it's not up to me. As Speaking as a clinician, I would feel it is perfectly safe to mm. do that as long as we're sensible. Yes. I mean, what's interesting to me as well, uh, and I guess we'd have to be careful because, I mean, I've certainly said it before, um, back in the summer, back end of sort of August and early September of last year, uh, that it seemed to have disappeared altogether. There didn't seem to be much trace of the virus any longer in, in large parts of the country. But then, of course, it came back in this new form, um, partly because of the reopening of uh, uh, of universities and schools and all of that. And suddenly we were back in it, uh, back in sort of November. So, I mean, are you confident that if this is the end of it, that it won't be back? I am confident, yes, because it's a different time of year, spring rather than, than autumn. Uh, we know last spring was bad, but that's a terrible, that's an entirely different situation. Mm. You're talking about 12 million people vaccinated. I would estimate a similar number have got natural immunity from the infection. I mean, the official numbers are 3 million or such, but I know, we all know, that a lot of people have been positive without ever being tested, without ever being reported, or some people have got immunity without even knowing that they've been that ill. So we're talking about getting on for half of the country very soon are going to be protected against this virus. And important to point out, you talk about the South Africa variant. I've not heard a single report of anyone who had COVID back in March getting sick again. I've not heard of a hospital doctor or nurse Mm. who was sick back in March, who's now gone down with a South African variant or even the Kemp variant. So to question the efficacy of the vaccines when it does appear that immunity protects you against all types of COVID-19 is nonsense. You know, the vaccines work, including the AstraZeneca one. I don't want people going out refusing them. I'm distressed to hear that in Hackney, the vaccine centres are closing early through lack of demand. That is simply not acceptable. We've all got to go out and get vaccinated. Yes, I think that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I heard an amazing conversation um, on a, a, a radio show the other day about um, somebody who said that there were some nurses uh, that he had been talking to um, who were uh, from uh, black and ethnic minority backgrounds who were saying that they weren't going to take the vaccine because their pastor had told them not to. Yeah, I mean, yeah it's ridiculous. a real challenge. It's ridiculous, yes. And it's a real challenge because you're talking about a group of people who do worse with COVID, who really should uh, get vaccinated. I hope we can overcome that uh, urgently because we don't want a reservoir of people who are going to continue to get sick. Uh, that, that would be uh, very unfortunate. It would indeed. be very counterproductive as well in particular yeah. parts of the country. And what I find interesting as well, though, uh, of course, Lawrence, is that the politicians are telling us, and so are the scientific advisors, that we will continue to have variants because that's what the virus does. So uh, if you're saying that we should be glad that we've got the vaccine, I think that's absolutely right. Because if you did have to tweak it, you've got it already. It's not like you have to invent something. 
Yeah, but at this stage, there's no reason to suggest we have to change the vaccine. OK, if they're going to change the vaccine, fine. I don't think we're going to need annual vaccinations. Uh, we might want to add something to the annual flu jab. Um, I, I, all that I've seen is this vaccine works and it works against all variants and, and even a single dose works. And we can see that in the way the numbers are coming down. And that's my personal experience looking at the patients I've seen, the patients have been vaccinated. I've not seen a single person who has been vaccinated once then go on to get COVID. Yes. And I mean, it has been a remarkable effort uh, by all concerned. And, and there's no reason to think that that won't be uh, continue to be the case. Um, but, you know, as far as the uh, um, the business, the day to day business that, that you're seeing, are you able to say as a GP now to people, you know, come and see us if you've got something wrong with your leg, come and see us if you've got, a, uh, you know, a hip problem, a backache, all that sort of thing. Are you able to now sort of increase your capacity, if you like? Yeah, well, I am. We've never closed. We've carried on seeing people face to face all the way through in, in, in our sector. We're in a, we're in a private clinic. Mm. Having said that, it's very quiet at the moment. The weather is bad. February is generally a pretty quiet month for various reasons anyway. Mm. We were mainly doing PCR tests for people traveling abroad. And of course, that's ground to a halt. Yes. Um, but yes, we do have people with serious medical conditions and we are getting them uh, secondary care, hospital care. Uh, we can do that. But by and large, uh, a lot of the health service has still ground to halt and um, people are not being able to access health care in the way that they hope they could. No, I mean, I was looking at a story from The Telegraph earlier on uh, today in which it said that uh, as a result of the uh, initial lockdown, um, there was something like uh, two thirds of people who died as a result of not being able to get medical treatment from things other than COVID uh, than, as, than as many died of COVID. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always very difficult to put a, num a number on these things. There's no doubt from my experience that people cannot get referrals to specialists um, in the health service. A lot of people are still having trouble getting in to see their GP. They're having video and phone consultations, which uh, are not satisfactory if you can't examine the patient. And investigations, scans, x-rays, biopsies, all of that sort of thing, uh, they're not happening. And it, it, it has to be inevitable. I, I know of a handful of cases of people done very badly because they couldn't get hospital care. Mm. But there must be thousands of cases around the country. It's very sad. All the more reason why we should be opening things up soon. Mm, absolutely. Because looking around as well, um, and I know that not every part of the country is the same, but when we talk about the success of, of the lockdown combined with the vaccinations and combined with the numbers of people who have already had the disease, you know, it hasn't been a lockdown which has been what I would call completely and utterly kind of um, uh, meaning that nothing was going on. There was an awful lot of people driving around, an awful lot of people still going to work, an awful lot of people out and about. Um, so, you know, that's good news in a way because it means that once things do open up, um, hopefully it doesn't absolutely change it overnight. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it does beg the question, what's the point of the lockdown anyway? We, you know, the, it, there's every good reason for easing it a bit now. Yeah. If if people are still going to work, you're right, the roads are still very busy. Parking in London is, is difficult, but I think that's because some people are avoiding public transport. Yes. But but you're, you're right, it, it hasn't ground to halt and the numbers are coming down. So that is kind of proof that we're doing okay and that we can think about easing the lockdown um, in so many different ways. I accept it has to be gradual, but you know this idea that we'll still be in some form of restrictions by the summer, surely that's a nonsense. Yes, well, it should be, shouldn't it? Because presumably, once we get into March, there will be people under 50 getting the vaccination, won't there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. And and all the vulnerable people would have been vaccinated and protected. The, the hospital admissions and death rates will come down. Uh, there's an argument that the under 50s, if they develop herd immunity, that's that's not a bad thing if we let them out of lockdown. Um, you know, I, and I, people that are talking about sporting events and so on. I, I, mass gatherings, I think, are probably the last thing on the list. But as far as I'm concerned, pretty much everything else um, should be opened up March um, at the at the latest. I don't see why we'd have to wait till Easter for these things to happen. Right. And I mean, later on today, we think Matt Hancock's going to be announcing a whole bunch of changes to the travel um, sort of rules as such. And they're going to be telling us about how this hotel quarantine is going to work. Although I'm slightly dubious that they haven't yet apparently hired any hotel chains to provide all these rooms. I don't, I'm not sure if this is going to be one of those policies that gets talked about, but never actually done. 
Well, I'm, I'm utterly confused by this travel thing. I'm waiting for the announcement, which will come in about 15 minutes. Yeah. But I woke up this morning to emails from patients saying, do you do these tests at two and eight days? I, and I had to look up to see what they're talking about. Right. Now, this is a plan that everyone, everyone traveling into the UK, apart from having a PCR COVID test before they travel, must also have a test on day two and day eight after they land. Um, and it's also a PCR test. Now, I don't know how this works um, because we're doing these tests for people. Presumably, they can't come into my clinic on day two. I mean, we are seeing people on day five for tests to release. We're on the official government list for tests to release, but I'm not sure I want to see people two days after they've arrived from certain countries. No. So presumably, no. that's a postal test, number one. Secondly, it's mandatory. So are people going to buy the test, be forced to buy the test at the airport? Because yeah. as far as I can yeah. see, that's the only way you can make it work. If you say to Joe Bloggs, okay, come into the country, but you've got to do a test of two days and eight days, he's going to go home. Is he going to phone up, up my clinic and buy two tests at a cost of 300, 400 pounds? I don't think he is. Well, not if he's having <laughs> to waste all the rest of his money in a hotel that he's been forced to stay at. But I mean, this is the other thing, right? I was under the impression they were going to say that the test will be presented to the people arriving at the airport and they'll have to take the test at the airport. But if they're already requiring a negative test before you get on the plane, I mean, that's just going to cause massive hold-ups, isn't it? Well, look, I, I think, again, it's too little too late. We should have done things about travel a long time ago. But the, the problem now is that we're doing so much better than the other countries in terms of vaccinations that they don't want to throw away the advantage we've got. So it's, it's right to be strict about travelling. But this... The day two, day eight thing doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure how it's going to be pleased. I mean, as I said, we're doing tests to release. I'm not sure that anyone is checking up on patients who say they've had a test at day five. I'm In theory, someone should be phoning our clinic and saying, is it true that Joe Bloggs had a test on day five? And that doesn't happen. Is that going to happen for the people having tested? the tests at day two and day eight. There's another group of people from certain countries that won't be able to go home. Those are the quarantine ones who mm. come from uh, South Africa. I well, I don't know if you're allowed to travel from South Africa, but if you're on the red list, those are the ones that go into quarantine. Those won't get these tests. We're talking about anyone from Spain, France, or any other country coming into the country from this date that Matt Hancock's going to say, we'll have to have yeah. three tests, one before they travel, one at day two and one at day eight, if they haven't already gone done tests to release at day five, which is incredibly confusing for everyone. Well, it is. And also, if you're planning on avoiding that scenario because it only applies to coming uh, people coming from certain countries, there's a pretty good chance you might try and avoid it by going via a different country, isn't it? Well, my, my understanding is th that... This is for everyone. Mm. I don't think there there is any country. That's, oh, really? Okay. That, I, I, yeah, my understanding is for everyone travelling to the UK, there is the red list, and I think those are people that have to quarantine for 10 days. And there's the other list where people can do test release at five days, but they also have to do this day two, day eight thing. Right. But my understanding, we'll find out from Matt Hancock soon. My understanding is that is anyone, and can you imagine how that's going to affect people travelling, which, which may be a good thing. Yes. But I think travelling yeah. will just stop. I think it will literally just stop. Um, and then the next question is, how long is this going to be in place for? Because um, obviously half term, well, no one's going to be going away February half term, but is this going to go on till Easter? We simply don't know. Right. Well, let's see whether he does actually explain himself today, as you say, in the in, in next half an hour or so. But, I mean, I had a, a strange thing happen at the weekend where a plane flew over the house and we stuck up that, uh, you know, you put the app to find out which plane it is, where it's coming from and all that. And according to the app, the plane was a BA flight from Johannesburg. And we're going, well, what's that all about then? Now, I don't know yeah, whether exactly. it was, if they'd got that wrong, or whether it was an empty plane, or whether it maybe just had cargo, um, because there was no passengers. But, I mean, it just seemed a bit odd that if you're, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, if you're flying from Joburg to, to London, you've still got crew who shouldn't be doing that, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, this has been going on for a long time, as you know, Mike, and the pictures we've seen of people queuing up at immigration at Heathrow have told us so why people are going holiday. I mean, I'm still I'm still furious about what's happening in December, mm. the number of people going away at Christmas. I've talked to you before yes. that we were doing literally thousands of tests 
but people leaving the country at Christmas for holidays and coming back. And really no one addressed that issue. Mm. So it, it, they've done it too late, but it's probably the right thing to do for a short time. I yeah. mean, let's do it for a short time, but come on. By, by this time next month, we, we've got to you know, release people a little bit. Yes, I think that's what we have to do. Dr. Lawrence Gerlis, as ever, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, GP at Same Day Doctor. Uh, very much of the opinion, as I am, uh, that it is surely time, if all of the vaccination programmes are running as well as they are, if all of the infection rates are down as much as they are, as much as 10% now of what they were at their height back in January, uh, you know, down from over 1,000 to 10 to 100 in some cases in certain parts of the country, you know, surely the next conversation is about what happens with people who need either to get their kids back to school or their businesses back up and running, uh, opening up the economy, that kind of thing. It must be happening soon. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.